0: You are listening to the Living Way Church Podcast. For more information about Living Way Church, go to livingwaychurch.cc. Well, here we go. So um, I was thinking about doing this uh, story that Ted's been telling, and uh, as I go through and I prepare for it, and this is the first time I've ever followed Ted in one of Ted's series, so I'm thinking, how's this exactly going to work? Ted's got his series going. He's really good. And I get into this Old Testament story, and I forget how much I love the Old Testament. Um, I forget how much amazing stuff there is there. I mean, I grew up in a church. I don't know if you guys were taught this. It's totally wrong if you were, but this is how I grew up. I grew up believing there was like a God of the Old Testament, and he was the mean God, right? He was the one that did like like mean things and disciplined. Like he was the, the guy you didn't want to run into. And, and so I grew up really and truly believing that God of the Old Testament was the God we feared. and And that's not necessarily wrong. But the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament too, right? And I forget that. I forget that when I'm looking through this, that Jesus was just as much present in David's day as he is today. And all the decisions and all the things that were going on were Jesus acting also. And so I forget that. And I think back to to camp, and we were at camp, and uh, how how many went to camp? What was the theme of camp? Somebody tell me story. I thought, as soon as I heard that, I thought, what a great theme. Man, I'm going to be able to preach that for months. That'll preach. And I thought, this is going to be great. We're going to hear the story and how we fit into it. And, and indeed we did. But I love the Old Testament as the story setting up Jesus, the story that tells us more and more and more about how God and, and Jesus act with us, right? And so then I started thinking about where did I fall in love with with reading stories? And it happened Way back in fifth grade, I can remember the teacher, Mr. Crane. Mr. Crane had about as much hair as I do now, um, except he had a ponytail in the back, which made him like 20 times cooler, right? Anybody who has a ponytail is automatically cooler, even if they're bald everywhere else. So uh, this just, is just how it is. So he would take us out. I never forget this. It would be math time. He'd be like, ah, forget math. We're going to go out and play some football. I loved this man. I was like, yes, this teacher understands me. He gets me, and then after we would go play football, we would come back in, and I will never forget that he would talk about stories, and he would pull out a story, and the first story he ever read in our class was Where the Red Fern Grows. Isn't that a great book? If you've not read it, go read it. Be ready to cry, even if you're a man. This is an okay book for men to cry to, because a dog dies, so that's always okay. All right, I remember Old Yeller. I'm sitting down with that. My dad, let's watch Old Yeller, and they're like trying not to cry in front of my dad, because... And he's crying, so it's okay to cry. But I remember that story, and then I remember falling in love with reading stories. How many of you guys ever did this? You're in school, and you have your literature book, right? And your literature book is full of all these stories. Did any of you guys ever, like, race ahead to, like, read other stories? You'd finish the one you were in, and then you'd, like, kind of, is that just me, or am I the only one that did that? Story brings us in. Story tells us things. You love to read and, and get these characters and these people. How many of you guys did that with your math book? No one. No one raised their ahead and like, "I wonder how this rhombus triangle is going to finish out." <laughs> you know Nobody does that. Um, but in stories we do, we race ahead, we want to find out what's going on. So that's where we're going to pick up today with more of David, and I've been enjoying this thoroughly. And so jump into the story today. Jump in the story with me, uh, try to grasp what's going on here, not just as history, but as a God acting that still acts the same way in our lives today. Right, that's the idea. That when we read the Old Testament, we see God acting in David's life and in these people's lives, and it's the same God that loves us and saved us and acts in ours today. So let's go on with it. So we're going to start picking up in 30. It says, "Now when David and his men came to Ziklag, I love these names. On the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negeb and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women, all who were in it, both small and great. They carried." Uh, no one but carried them off and went their way. They killed no one but carried them off and went their way. So as you remember, uh, David has, just kind of from last week, David was getting ready to go battle Saul. Finally, he was going to go to war. The Philistines were going to war. He was going to join them and, and kind of deal with Saul once and for all. Somewhere in here, he gets cold feet. He decides this isn't what he should be doing. The Philistines really kind of push the issue. They don't want him there. They don't want Israelites fighting them and on their same side at the same time. They think that's a bad idea. So they send David home. Right, and David gets home, and what does he come home to? His entire town is burned. Everything he owned is gone. His wives are gone. I mean, this is the this is what we're seeing. Um, can you imagine David's heart at this point? Like, I, I read into the story a little bit. I think, what would I feel like if I was David? I know I would feel guilty. I would feel I would feel like, hey, here I went up against Saul. I knew I wasn't supposed to do it. I knew I wasn't even supposed to be there. But I thought it. I entertained it. And even though it didn't happen. This is all my fault because I thought this or I wanted to do this. And I'm punishing myself for even thinking about going against God's will. And I don't know if that's what David's thinking, but I know he's beating himself up, even for being gone. And so he gets back to town and everything is destroyed. Put yourself in his place. Who are you blaming? Who are you angry at? David has no one to turn to. The buck stops here with David. What do you do? Your, your, your wives are gone, your children are gone, your, your, your car is gone, your house is gone. What do you do? You know, I, I tend to think that David is at least questioning God at this point. God, I don't understand what's going on. He's got to be at the bottom of his strength, his ability, his whatever he's carrying with him. Right? You guys ever been there? Just There's just no more left? And I think the tendency is to ask God why. What's going on? I don't understand. You know, he's been going through this for many, many years. And I I think he doesn't get it. And it says, when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, their wives, their sons, and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to do so. I have you ever been that low where you just cry until you have... Just nothing. There's just no tears left. Your body is devoid of all water and whatever else makes tears. There's like nothing left. Have you been that destitute of spirit? Have you been that lost? This is what we're seeing here. And I love what David does. I mean, this makes David David. It makes him like the superhero of the Old Testament, the superhero of all time. Instead of blaming, instead of yelling, instead of cursing, he calls on God. Right? Everybody's blaming him. Okay? It says, now David's two wives had been taken captive. Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him. For all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. So here's all these people. They're all mad at him. I mean, he's beating himself up. It's not like David has lost any less. His wives are gone. His children are gone. Right? He's lost the same amount. And everybody is mad at him. Everybody's blaming him. Everybody's telling him, this is your fault. Matter of fact, they're so mad at him, they're just this shy of getting ready to kill him. They're ready to walk away, give it all up. And David, in the midst of all of this, turns to God. See, I, I think this echoes a God that is always there, is always ready, is always faithful. And David knows this. David, David's heart after God is, is not saying, I don't think he had God's exact heart. It's that his heart was always pursuing God. No matter what, right? No matter what. You guys can look at the things in your life and you can look at what's going on. And the question is, does my heart in all of this pursue God? This is this is a lesson we learn over and over and over from David, that no matter what's going on, he pursues God. In his great times, he pursues God. In his down times, he pursues God. When he's afraid, he pursues God. When everything has gone wrong, when nothing else can go wrong, he pursues God. We're to find out when David sins, probably the worst mistake he made, he turns to God. In everything, David turns to God. I find this amazing because I don't always do this. Okay, I want to always do this, but... My stuff gets in the way, right? And if I'm here, I don't know if I turn to God like David does, but I'm, I'm hoping that I can get there. All right, so let's see what happens. Okay, so let's pick it up right here. And when David, his men, oh, I already read that part. David inquired the Lord, he, so he prays. Lord, saying, shall I pursue this band? Shall I overtake them? And he said to him, pursue, for you will surely overtake them, and you will surely rescue all. So David goes, he prays, he goes. I like David's attitude in prayer. I'm going to pray about something, I'm going to hear from God, and I'm not going to hesitate. I'm not going to ask, are you sure, God? I'm not going to be like, hey, hey God, uh, I know that's exactly what you told me, but um, can we argue the preposition here real quick and see if that's really what you meant? Did you mean go in like the, the literal tense? Uh, I don't know. David just goes. His, his prayers are always followed in action. And I think that's a good lesson for us, too. When we pray, be ready to act on what God tells us to do. Um, so David went, he takes 600 men with him, and, and came to the book, Brook Besor. Now, what's interesting about this is, of his 600 men, 200 of them get tired. Okay? So David's got 600 warriors. I assume that these 200 staying behind are like the quartermasters, kind of like the bookkeepers, the typewriter guys. They're like, man, woo! Right? And they're at this brook and they're like, we're done. I got nothing left. I mean, uh, emotionally, they're all beat up. And, and they're, they, they, they're on the run, basically. There's no like tanks or, or helicopters or airplanes or transports. They're jogging to the battle site, right? So they, they, they've had it. Now, if I'm David, I'm like, man, I got 600 guys. I'm going up against what's a superior force. I'm like, get your button in gear. You're coming. <laughs> I don't care. Even if you're just like there, we'll use you as a shield or something. Come on. <laughs> right? But David has compassion. He says, I understand. I get it. Stay. I, he doesn't risk their lives for his gain, which I think is interesting. I think too often we push so hard that we are trying to get people to go with us. And we're trying to get people to see what we're seeing. And we push so hard because we can see it so clearly. And we're blind to the fact that not everybody can see it, or not everybody's ready, or not everybody's there. David sees this. He lets them stay. Um, Some of of his men have... um, Let me go to the next verse here. Sorry about that. But David pursued. He and 400 men. For 200 were too exhausted to cross the brook. Besor remained behind. So David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken and rescued his two wives. But nothing of theirs was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil, or anything that they had taken for themselves, David brought it all back. So he prays. He says, God, should I go? God says, go, you'll win. Not only does he win, he loses nothing. Now, i got to imagine they're feeling pretty good about themselves. Okay? Hey, we won. We got it all back. God's good. David's good. They're all back in good graces, right? And, and that that's what it looks like. If you go to the next verse, it says... So David had captured all the sheep and the cattle, which they drove ahead of the other livestock. And they said, this is David's spoil. They're like chanting David's name. like David. <sighs> that was like a crowd roaring, in case you didn't know what that was. Okay. So they're excited. They're, they're All the way back, they're telling people, like, look, David, awesome. Spoil, stuff, sheep, amazing. Right? They're excited. If I'm David, though, I got to wonder if he's thinking, what was the point of all of this? God, what was the point? I don't understand why you would come back and put us through all this just to take us to get it all back. Why didn't you just leave it? Why did I have to go chase these people down and, 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 and go to war and, and put people at risk and probably lose a couple warriors and, and do all of this? Why? Have you guys ever wondered like, what the point of what God's doing in your life is? Like you can't see it. It seems like you're running around in circles. And and your heart's after God and you're in the right place, but you just can't see it. And this is how i got to think David's thinking right now. God, I love you, but I don't understand. God, I'm following you. I did what you told me to. I'm glad we got everything back, but I don't understand. I don't get it. If you go to the next verse, I think we can maybe start to understand something here. So... In the next chapter, we we get to hear what's going on with Saul. So we're going to switch from David for a second to Saul. Um, I'm going to believe these two instances are going on at the same time. Um, But we're seeing the story because you only tell one story at a time. So they're switching gears and saying, hey, here's meanwhile back with Saul. Okay, we're flipping back to Saul. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, the Jonathan we know and love, and Abinadab and Malchishua. I never can get that one right. The sons of Saul. So they basically kill all the sons of Saul that are there. The battle went heavily against Saul, and the archers hit him. And when he was badly wounded by the archers, then this this is key. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and pierce me through with it, otherwise these uncircumcised will come and pierce me through and make sport of me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. So Saul took his sword and fell on it. When his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword. Saul kills himself. So the battle's going probably really badly. He's got a couple arrows in him, but this is Saul knows it's over. Okay, and he kills himself. Can't get his armor bearer to do it, he kills himself. what amazes me about this story is what Saul is worried about. It's not that he killed himself. I know if you study this, a lot of people make a big deal about that suicide, and it's important to understand that if we're not following Christ, we can get to a place of desperation where that becomes an option in our minds, even though God never intended it. But really what amazes me, is that Paul is more worried about how they're going to see him and how they're going to kill him than about God. He's dying. He knows no matter what happens in the next couple of minutes, hour, however long it takes, he's going to be dead. And not one word about God. Not one word about, hey, God, save me. At least save my soul. I'm worried about my soul. No deathbed confession for Saul. Saul is 100% worried about how he looks. It's 100% pride. And I think to myself, well, isn't that what blocks us from Jesus is pride? I can't think of anything I do that gets in the way of Jesus that doesn't have something to do with pride. And I I watch Saul's life, and I go back over the story that Ted has been telling, and I've watched this build in Saul's life. At one point, he followed God, but very quickly, it starts becoming about Saul to the point that he's so worried when he dies that he doesn't want them to... To, he doesn't want to give an inch. He doesn't want to give in to his pride. I just, I find that fascinating that his pride has taken over so much that even in the worst moment, he doesn't call on Christ or God. Um, it's just amazing to me. Now, this paints a picture for what we've been expecting. This is what we've been waiting for, right? Saul is gone, David is in, right? Everybody knows David is is the heir apparent everybody knows david has heard from samuel david is the one that god has chosen everyone knows this so it's going to come to pass now david's in it all starts and i'm sure david's going to get here too but first somebody comes and tells him the story of saul's death and this is an interesting little story because there's this guy that comes and he says hey i was there when saul died matter of fact um, I finished Saul off, is what he tells David. Now, we don't know if he's lying or if he actually, like, Saul fell out his sword and didn't quite die, and he goes and finishes him off. We don't know. But this guy comes to David and says, hey, I saw Saul. I, I finished him off. Here's his crown. Here's his sword. Here's his armor that, that I could recover. And um, it, it seems like this guy is trying to get into David's good favor. He's trying to earn a place. He's trying to go after. But, but what we find here, and, and, and if you take this little bit of the side story, you see that we can never manipulate what God has planned for our own good. Okay, we can't. We try. We try to say, well, if I just stretch this or take this, and this is what this guy is trying to do. He's, he's taking this story of Saul and saying, hey, I'll use this for my own good. It eventually costs him his life because David kills him for having killed Saul. He punishes him for having taken Saul's life. Um and now we see David, and David is is, we're told, just utterly depressed. The depressed isn't the right word. Sad. Uh, mourning. He is he is very sad and, and I can't imagine it's about Saul. Okay, as you read this song in the next chapter, David writes a song. He's a musician, they write songs for everything, right? So he just sits down and says, Hey, it's a good time for a song. Right, and he writes a song. It's imagine, I imagine what what Chris would do after a battle. Right, he would sit down and be like, "Song time." Right, and he writes this song, and it 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 basically paints Saul as this warrior and this king that provided when when he could for the for the kingdom, and paints him as a good king. There's nothing personal in it. There's nothing about like you would expect from someone that loves Saul dearly. All he really says about Saul is Saul and Jonathan loved each other. It's really all he says about Saul. But then it hits Jonathan, and you see a shift in the song. And he says, his love of Jonathan, and this is a weird, this is one of those weird things that happens in the Bible, and you're just like, i got to think about this for a second, because it sounds really weird. It says, his love for Jonathan was better than the love of a woman. And I'm like, whoa, <laughs> what's going on here, right? And as I research this and I look at this, it's it, it, you see this love that is, Selfless, that doesn't have any purpose. There's, there's no gain in it. They just love each other. There is no call for it. There is no responsibility for it. It is just this deep love founded in God that they have for each other. And, and David is broken over Jonathan's death. And so he writes this song and he, and he sings this song. He instructs it. Everybody's going to learn this song and learn how to sing it to honor Saul and honor David or honor Jonathan. And I like here that he finishes what he started. Because he takes time to honor Saul. He takes time to honor Saul because Saul was God's anointed. And he never forgets that. He never loses sight of that. In the couple moments where he makes decisions against that, he immediately repents of them. He immediately thinks that was the wrong thing to do. David honors God's decisions even when it costs David. To the very end, he honors Saul. I think that speaks so much about David's heart and where he was and what he was doing uh, and how he sought God. So so now Saul, Jonathan, for the most part, the house of Saul is gone. There's a couple people left, but there's not much of this house left. Okay, <clears throat> excuse me. So this is where we pick it up. After the morning, after the right time, David went, this is the verse we pick up on. So David went up there. And his two wives also, Ahinoam of the Jezreelites and Abigail the widow, widow of Nabal. He goes everywhere with these two, uh, apparently. And David bought up his men who were with him, each with his household, and they lived in the cities of Hebron. Then the men of Judah came and they're there and anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, It was the men of Jabesh gilead who buried Saul. So here comes David. He goes to Hebron because God tells him to go there. And Judah shows up, the, the, the tribe of Judah. Now, the tribe of Judah is one of the larger tribes. Uh, it has, there's a lot of stuff going on with Judah that's important throughout the Bible. They're, they're, they've got warriors. They've got men. This is a big deal. Judah shows up and says, hey, you are king now. We, we recognize you as king. Um, you're you're going to be our king. Here's some background of what happened with Saul. These people that they're talking about went and rescued Saul's body. Okay? The Philistines had hung Saul's body up in a courtyard hung up his armor, were making uh, light of it, and they went and rescued Saul's body. So David right here takes care of issues first. First thing he does as a king is he takes care of those who took care of Saul. And again, it speaks to David's heart for Saul. And he's king now, right? Can you imagine David sitting there? It's finally happening. Judas Judas came. they've, They've acknowledged him as king. He's ready to roll. He's like, this is what I've been waiting for. This is what God has has anointed me for. This is what Samuel told me was going to happen. This is what I, I did for so long, following God in such a way that I could take the throne in a in a correct and right way. And I imagine he's sitting there waiting for the other tribes, right? Judah's come. Judah's the leader. Judah's the biggest. And he's waiting. He's waiting for the other tribes. I think excited about what God's going to do now that he's king. But it doesn't happen the way David thought it was going to happen. For the next seven years, David's going to be in a civil war. Okay, this is, a, this is what happens. But Abner, the son of Ner... Now, Abner, if you don't know, is Saul's commander. Ner is Saul's uncle. So Abner is Saul's... That make him his cousin, I guess. Okay, so they're cousins. So Abner is of the house of Saul, but can't take over. He can't take the throne. He can't do any of that. All he can do is run an army. And so what he does... It says he's coming back from the whooping they took at the hand of the Philistines. He gathers up everybody, everybody that's running away. He kind of gathers them together, gives them kind of safekeeping while David's trying to get to Hebron. He's gathering them together, kind of solidifying things, and, and he picks a guy to, to represent Israel. So Abner the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, the son of Saul and brought him over to Mahanaim. I can never get that one right either. He made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, and over Benjamin, even over all of Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he became king over Israel. And he was king for two years. The house of Judah, however, continued to follow David. So everybody else lines up with Isbosheth. I'm serious. At this point, I'm David, and I'm just like, God, you made me king. It's time for me to be king. I can finally take my rightful place. And it's still not happening. I I, I don't know how David does it. I don't know how he keeps uh, going after it. I don't know how he follows God and all this. But at, at this point, I imagine it's frustrating. I uh, can't identify with this. I can't think about it in ways that make sense to me. At this point, I'm just man, I'll just take Judah, that's enough. God, I know you had bigger plans, but Judah's in, I'm in, let's just go with that. And and David doesn't do that either. Um, When you go to the next verse, we see Abner trying to consolidate. He wants to get rid of David. As long as David is king of Judah, then there will be no united kingdom. Ispoth Seth cannot take control. So Abner knows this, and he marches the armies down to meet David's armies. Okay, and it's a pretty long march. So David is going to meet them. Okay? But David has given instructions to Joab, who is the commander of David's armies, to kind of fight a defensive battle. Right? And at first I'm not understanding this. If I'm David, I'm like, man, it's on like Donkey Kong. <laughs> you guys took my kingdom. It's mine. I want it back. Man, we are coming after you guys. Because Judah is going to provide the warriors. Judah is a warlike tribe. So he's got the bodies. He's got the people. He can go fight this war. But David tells his commander, "Don't initiate the fight. Only be def- only defend our territory. If Abner comes and attacks, defend. Otherwise, chill." And this is brilliant as I think about this, okay? I'm trying to think how David's thinking. This is brilliant. What happens if David starts this civil war? In in that day and age, if you killed somebody, it started a blood feud, right? If you killed somebody in battle and they were important to their family, they never forgave you. They they still fought against you. They still rebelled against you. And David knows this. David knows if he's going to bring the kingdom together, if he's going to get them all on the same page, he can't be the aggressor. He has to let them come to him. And I'm like, oh, Jesus. Jesus. I get it. All right, so I'm seeing David, and I love this part. It got me all excited when I read it the first time. I'm excited again, okay? David is having, what's happening to David is what happened to Jesus. Jesus came in and didn't say, hey, you are going to follow me. Don't care if you want to. I'm God. I deserve it. Follow me. Jesus could have done that, right? And I think about what would have happened to us if Jesus had. It wouldn't have been the same relationship. It wouldn't have been a love. I wouldn't have got to choose. I wouldn't have got to follow. I just would have been a slave. And David gets this. And David says, look, you have the choice to follow me or not. I'm not going to force it. And all of his battles from here on out are defensive battles. Every time he runs into Saul's household or Saul's old troops, he never is the aggressor. He always is the one waiting for them to come around. And it takes seven years of this for it to happen. I just love the picture of Christ we see right here in David. So Abner said to Joab, Now let the young men arise and hold a contest before us. And Joab said, Let them arise. So they arose and went over by count 12 for Benjamin and Isboshef, the son of Saul, and 12 of the servants of David. Each one of them sized his opponent by the head, and thrust his sword in the opponent's side. So they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called Helcath Hazareum. Hazareum, I don't know, which is in Gibeon. It means men of the the strong valley, men men that fell, strong men. It's got a weird interpretation. Abner can't, they're sitting down at this well, basically. Abner's men come up and they sit down because Abner doesn't want to start the fight either. He doesn't want to be seen as the aggressor. He wants to gain favor. He wants everybody to see David as the rebel. So he sits down on one side of this well with his men and and Joab sits down on one side of the well with his men and they're just sitting there. And Abner has to have a conflict. They have to fight or Abner doesn't take over the kingdom. And Joab is having his men not fight. And so what Abner does is he calls over to Joab and says, Hey, let's have some of our men fight each other. That at least will be entertaining. So while we're sitting here, we have some entertainment. And this is a duel of sorts. It's a a blood feud that's going to start because of this. And they go and they basically grab each other's hair. They have no shields. They have no defense. They grab each other's hair and they take their sword and stick each other with it. And both combatants die. 24 men gone. And and when I read and research this, they, they think that the reason Abner did this is if they saw all these men die and they saw their brothers die and they saw them be sacrificed in this way that it would upset them to the point that a war would start, and it did. Okay, Now everybody is mad, everybody is angry, and war starts. And Abner loses, badly. Okay, In the end of this, we find out that David only loses 19 men out of all his men, and Abner loses three or 400 men. So Abner gets just destroyed in this battle. And at the end of the battle, um, he's running away, and there's a story about a guy that chases him. Um, in here that's kind of interesting. I'm I'm not going to touch on that much other than to say, make sure you're doing the right thing and that God wants you to do it. Otherwise, it doesn't end up real well. But go read the story about the guy that chases him. It basically says, hey, he's really fast. He chases down Abner. Abner kills him. But this is the part I want to focus on. Then Abner called to Joab and said, shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the end? How long will you refrain from telling the people to turn back from following their brothers? Abner says, hey, let's call this off. Why are you chasing us? It's brother versus brother. Let's stop this. Why are we fighting? We should just get along. And Abner has the gall to say, Abner started this. And Abner says, let's stop. And Joab replies, as God lives, if you had not spoken, surely then the people would have gone away in the morning, each from following his brother. In other words, if you had not spoken, we would have woken up this morning, friends. And we would have walked away, brothers, because we would have spent a night just hanging out. But because of what you started, there is now going to be civil war. And he puts it all on Abner. See, Abner is already realizing if he doesn't make peace, if he doesn't get this right, he's lost. David's going to win. And he's trying to get on Joab's good side. It's not going to happen. But he's trying. He's already trying to manipulate the outcome of this. And again, guys, I see... So much of what we do with Christ. So often we in- initiate something that we want, that we see, whether it's in God's story or not. And then we try to manipulate the outcome. We try to make it into what we want it to be. And, and Joab's not having any of it. He's saying, hey, this is all on you. You started this. this. This didn't have to happen. This is all on you. So as we go through this, then I start thinking, man, this is this ends... We're at Sam, 2 Samuel 2 right now. Okay, We've gone from 30 to 2 in these stories. Um, we're going to find that David continues to fight battles for the next four or five years after this. Um, he's eventually going to be king of all Israel, but it's going to take him a little bit. And, and I'm thinking to myself, what do I walk away from in this? What we've seen is David getting pulled out of battle, I think, so he doesn't have to kill Saul. I think God pulls David out of the battle sends him back home, sends him chasing after his family so that he doesn't have to be involved in any way, shape, or form in the death of Saul. I think God's protecting him. And then Saul and Jonathan die. People that Some of the people he really counts on are dead now, and he has to, to go after the kingdom on his own. And we see him take the throne, but not in a way he thought he was going to take it, the way God kind of has it worked out for whatever reason, and he has to be very careful how he does it. He has to be very sure he's following God's plan in this. And so I sit down now after this story, and I think to myself, what what do we get out of this? Why did I read this Old Testament story about David and war and Saul dying? What do we get out of this? Well, the first thing I walked away from it was this. Even in following God's will, we can't see the whole picture. I mean, I think we know that. But this story spells it out. It draws out how God has an idea of everything that's going on. And we can't see the whole picture. We have to acknowledge that. We have to know that when God is looking at eternity, he sees the whole thing. And we can only see this much of it. And we have to not only acknowledge it, we have to count on it. David knew he could only see this much of what was going on, so he constantly turned back to God for guidance for the whole thing. This is something we should be doing. We can't see it. When we're not sure that God is telling us to do something, we have got to be on our knees praying, saying, God, show me what you want me to do next in light of the whole picture that I might never see. I think David gets to see why God did what he did here, but we don't always get to see that. In um, Peter it says this, 1 Peter, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God is refining David. God is taking David through this process so that when he becomes king, he is a good king. God is taking David through this process so that in all things, good or bad, whatever's coming, David is going to trust God. Without this process, I don't think that happens. Guys, without the processes you are going through, without the refining that God is taking you through right now, you are not going to be ready for what he has for you next. God is never done refining us. God is never done working on us. God is never done with us. And and praise Him for that. Because I am nowhere near finished. Nor do I want to be. And so sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it hurts. Refining by fire sounds painful. You know, if God is refining me by a fiery process, that's going to burn a little bit. But hopefully it's burning off the stuff I don't need. The next thing I get out of this is that even when it seems pointless, God has a point. As I'm reading about David chasing down his family, I'm thinking, what is the point of all of this? What, why am I doing this? Why am I in this circle? Why am I looking at this this way? Why, why, God, have you done this? There seems to be no point. Not even like a bad thing is going on here. It just seems pointless. How many right now are looking at life and and and?" and looking at what's going on, and you just can't see the point. See, but God always has one. God always has a point. He always has a purpose. He always has something that's going on in your life, always. If you know him, it's always going to be something. It says this in Romans, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God has always got a plan for you. It's a good plan, and you just have to buy into the plan. You don't have to understand it. God gets it. God guides it. God is drawn up the plan. See, what we learned at camp is this is his story, not ours. The whole purpose of us being here is to be connected and involved and committed to his story, not ours. See, it's not our story including him. It's his story, and he lets us be included. It's a huge difference. Buying into the fact that this is his story and his plan and he has nothing but good for us helps us understand that when bad things happen or, or when evil in this world seems to win, that God has a purpose for it and God has a point for that. And we might not see it, but God is working in our favor for our good, for his glory, not ours. And that's important. That's what I see in this picture, in in these four chapters. I see this over and over and over. God has a plan. God knows what he's doing, and we get to see it looking back. The next one is this. There will always be something else to follow. When you're following Christ, there is always going to be an alternative. Always going to be an alternative. In David's picture, we see Abner pop up, and the people can choose to follow David or choose to follow what amounts to Abner. And most of the people choose Abner. They choose what they know. In the, in the land at the time, succession went from son king to son to king to son. It was, it was the house that owned the kingship kept it until it was taken from them by force. Instead, instead of being God's people here, instead of doing what they were told to do, instead of setting up the law and the covenants that had been set up for them, they said, we want to be like everybody else. It was the whole point of getting Saul in the first place. And they don't change. They don't learn anything. They don't learn that God never wanted them to have a king. God wanted to be their king. But if there's going to be a king, you still have to follow God. And they're given that choice in David. God anoints David. God picks David. And they can follow God by following David, and most of them don't. There will always be a distraction. There will always be a choice. It will never be easy to follow Christ. There will always be an option. And that option, 9 out of 10 times is more attractive on face value than following Christ. So how do you know? How do you know which to follow? How do you know which is right? A, a lot of times we're told we know and we just don't like the option. But B, we're supposed to have a heart after God like David did. David didn't mess up a whole lot because he followed God. He checked with God. He prayed. He sought God. In... um. Romans again, it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what your will of God is, what the good, perfect and acceptable will of God is. In other words, constantly be seeking God. If you don't want to get messed up, if you don't want to be at the end of your rope like Saul and all you have left is your pride. To me, that's the saddest way to go when all you're sitting on and all you can do is look back and say, this was my life. And at the end of it, I just want this to be left alone. We don't look forward to Christ and say, hey, you know what? Like Paul says, all this is nothing. All I've done, all I've accomplished is nothing. All I wish for is Christ. That is the better thing, is heaven. And I want to be there. And our eyes are there. We're set. But we have to ignore what the world is telling us is our other option. We have to dial in. Even when we win, God still has challenges for us. David wins. David gets the win. He gets the W. He gets it. But it's not the win he thought it was going to be. Judah's the only one that comes on board. Everybody else leaves him behind. So even when we win, God still sometimes has challenges for us to still work on. And that's what we got to look at. We can't be discouraged by that. David wasn't. David understood that if he followed God in this, he would eventually have a kingdom united and they could do some amazing things. But it had to happen the way it happened. And you're going to see that as we go through the rest of this. David gets it. I will keep working on these challenges. I'll keep working on what you put in front of me because you're not done yet. And so I can't take ownership of something you're not done with yet. God had to finish it. In James, one of my favorite verses of all times, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete and not lacking in anything. How many would like, like to be not lacking in anything? Anybody? There's like two people. Really? Okay, Only two people, everybody else is like, I could totally be deficient. I would be totally okay with that. All right? Deficient is where my wheelhouse, <laughs> right? But it is for me. A lot of times I find myself up against things that I'm not ready for, I'm not prepared for, and I look back and say, you know what? God wasn't ready for me to be here yet. I rushed it. I pushed it. I wanted it now. I wanted the whole win instead of the partial win. And God says, chill, relax. I think he says, Chillax because that's my favorite word, all right? And he says, just stop for a second. We're not ready for that. Let perseverance finish its work. Let me mature you. Let me get you ready for this. And as you look at David's story from the beginning of the time when he was anointed by Samuel, even before that when he was in the fields, tending the sheep, singing songs on his harp that he just had, who just has a harp, okay? But David did, ready to sing and ready to worship God at all points, okay? Okay? From then until now, you see God working on David, bringing him along, teaching him what it means to be in court, teaching him what it means to be a king, having him watch how things work in politics and how things work in the country and how Israel works and being taught by Samuel how God works and how the law applies. And by the time he takes over in Judah and starts working to be king, he is ready for big things. David's going to be the king that brings all the promises home for Israel in that time period. He's ready for it because he was patient. This has taken years and years and years, and David has been patient. But this is the part I love best about the whole story, is that in the entire time, God is in the battle with us. Chris, got it? Okay. All right. So... Am I running that late? No, I'm good. Okay, so I'm almost done, I promise. Okay, here we go. God's in the battle with us. Now, here's the thing. As you're reading this story, you see over and over, David seeks God. God does this. God gives the Philistines into David's hand. God is in this. Jesus is in this. This is not a battle we were ever meant to fight alone. God is in it the entire time. When you guys look at this, and I do a little bit, I get overwhelmed sometimes. And I think to myself, Sigh. I can never do what David did. I could never be that man. I'm not that patient. I'm, I'm way too prideful. I'm way too arrogant. I'm way too aggressive. There's no way I could have been David. And I think if David could speak to us, and I think in this story we're hearing this, David would say, I couldn't be David. The only reason I was David is because my heart was after God. And that's what set me apart. God did everything. God protected me over and over and over again from Saul getting to me. God kept me from killing Saul. God kept me from ruining my chances to be king. God won. I participated. That's what David would tell us, I think. I think that's what the the story tells us. God is in the battle. We We can overcome anything because God is in the battle. In uh, Ephesians, it says this, last verse. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Our battle is not a fleshly one, it's a spiritual one. God wins. Are we going to dial into that? Are we going to grab onto that and say, God has won this battle and God is fighting this battle on our behalf? How are we going to get involved? Okay, I'd like to encourage you to do a couple things with the youth that the youth are doing this year, and then we'll pray. Okay? The youth are committed to do a couple things this year. They're learning to study their Bible. We're spending the next couple weeks learning how to study our Bible, to get into it, to have meaning to it. If if you're not in your Bible, you don't know the God that has won the battle. You don't know the God that loves you. You don't know the God that has a plan for you. And you can't see his overall plan, but even in these four chapters, we can see that God had a plan. So take some time. Get in your word. Let these stories resonate. Let them marinate in there a little bit. And then think about what you've learned. Think about what you've got out of it, and then apply it. Do something with it. Okay, that's the second thing. Do something with what you're learning. Don't just let it be something for you. Yay, I got fed. That's awesome. I'm glad you got fed. I'm glad that you are stronger. But God does not make you stronger unless he has something that that strength is needed for. He doesn't. He doesn't give you strength that's not needed. He doesn't give you abilities that aren't going to be used. He doesn't want you just to sit there and get fed. He wants you to get fed with the idea that you're going to need that energy. You're going to need that encouragement. And this week, God wants to use you. Tomorrow, God wants to use you. You might not understand it. There might not seem to be a point to it. But God's got a plan that involves you tomorrow. Do you know what it is? Have you been praying, which is the last one? How much time are you spending seeking God? Are you on your knees on a regular basis? at least in, in spirit, telling God, hey, this is your world. Teach me how to run in it. I would encourage you in those three things, always. Read more, pray more. Get up and do something with it. Okay? That's that's what I've got. That's what I think Samuel taught us. So I'm going to pray over us, and then I'm going to ask the ushers to come. So let's pray real quick. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for the t- chance to just read this story and and see you in it. God, that Jesus loves us so much that he would come and die for us so that we could know you. God, that this Bible is chock full of stories that tell us how you operate, how you love us, how you care for us. And God, that we can constantly grow closer to you and that you can constantly battle for us. Thank you for everything you do. In Jesus' name, amen.